the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Received an interesting uh, email from a listener last night based on something I said yesterday or the day before, that if adults would be adults, we wouldn't have problems with our children. I want to stay with that for a moment. A lot of you asked me for um, a quote along those lines that I also shared with you yesterday from Heather Haying. She's the former professor at Evergreen State. She wrote, Stealing childhood from the young by organizing and scheduling their play for them, by keeping them from risk and exploration, by controlling and sedating them with screens and algorithms and drugs, practically guarantees they will arrive at the age of adulthood without being capable of actually being adults. I want to stay on this theme for a moment, stealing childhood from children. This seems to be a theme, and it's particularly ripe in the fight you see between Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis. When Joe Biden says Ron DeSantis should not stand in the way, Ron DeSantis was right earlier in the week to say, if you're coming for Florida's parents, I'm going to stand in your way. If you're coming for Florida's children, I'm going to stand in your way. All of this, by the way, we should note is being spoken about by Joe Biden in the context of him saying he probably has no legal authority. He has said that on um, mask mandates outside of federal property or federal employment, and he has uh, also said that in reference to the extension of uh, rent abatement um, and not uh, requiring uh, renters to pay rent. Uh, He had said both things were not within his power to do. He hasn't moved within his power to universally or enforce mask mandates in states that have laws against them, but he said they're exploring it. He has, in fact, extended the renting, the renter's moratorium, uh, even though he said only the day before extending it that it was constitutionally dubious at best. So in this um, in this interesting ongoing fight between Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis, it's really a fight between the administrative state and progressivism and individual rights and families. Candace Owens, by the way, in case you didn't know, she's now using occasionally, uh, depending on the um, on the site, she's now using her married name. Sometimes it's Candace Farmer. It's the same person, Candace Owens or Candace Farmer or Candace Owens Farmer. She writes, if you aren't paying attention, every effort the government is making is an effort to dehumanize the population by destroying human interaction and connection. Self-check our counters everywhere. Social distancing from one another, staying away from family, and finally, masking your face forever so we no longer identify one another as individuals and human beings. Yeah, indeed, it's in, it's 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 inevitably going to be difficult, if not impossible, to exercise human rights when you can't be an individual and a human being. The masks remind me, in that regard, of nothing 
so much as the Kurt Vonnegut story about Harrison Bergeron, where the pretty people had to have masks and the smart people had to have chimes or implants into their brain to scatter their thoughts. Candace continues, I told you at the beginning of this that the masks were never going to be temporary. Hopefully, those of you who thought this was about health are now paying attention. The kids are the last and most important step. Once they sufficiently dehumanize children, there is no hope for the future because, as the left likes to tell us and is eminently true, the children are the future. Once children believe that masking is normal and being disconnected from one another is normal, America and the West, as we know it, is over. Fight these mandates at every level, tooth and nail. Withdraw your children from these schools. I cannot scream this enough. Well said, Candace Owens or Candace Owens Farmer. Well said. Um, You have occasionally heard me talk about other examples of this. It, of course, didn't start with masks. Uh, You can get the um, adultization of children, as Neil Postman calls it, in any any number of ways. You have Teen Vogue aimed at 10 and 11 years, 10 and 11 year olds, particularly women, advertising and promoting and propagandizing about Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin and Putin and communism to them. You have Netflix now working on a series with Ibrahim, excuse me, Ibram X. Kendi of Boston University and, uh, and, and his book Anti-Racist Baby, a series that is aimed for pre- Schoolers. We're going to teach preschoolers through Netflix how not to be racist. And then, of course, you have all form of BLM curricula that wants to get rid of the family, as well as the Cartoon Network, which is teaching children, presumably younger than teens, about transgenderism. And it is doing so by using the Gender Justice Toolkit, which, by the way, if you go to UC, is sponsored by an organization that promotes Malcolm X, and not just Black Lives Matter, but Black Power. Um, There's no real specific communist youth league in America right now, Maybe because there doesn't need to be one. They exist in most communist and tyrannous countries. There was also a Nazi youth league, and they supplement the schools in communist and Nazi-run countries. Um, One of the lyrics from the anthem of the communist youth league in China today, of course they would have one, is, Mother named us with communism. We are creating a new world. Do you ever get the sense that a new world is being created or attempting to be created with your children. Neil Postman, that was the sociologist I quoted a few minutes ago. There's only two sociologists, I think, ever worth their salt and worth quoting. Neil Postman is one of him. His book, uh, he's written several on entertaining ourselves to death, news, and that sort of thing. The one I find the most important, or at least pressing right now, is his book, The Disappearance of Childhood. And he opens up a chapter on that 
which I think is really important if we're trying to understand what is being done to our society by going after our children. The evidence of the disappearance of childhood comes in several varieties and from different sources, he writes. There is, for example, the evidence displayed by the media themselves, for they not only promote the unseating of childhood through their form and context, but reflect its decline in their content. There's evidence to be seen in the merging of the taste and style of children and adults, as well as in the changing perspectives of relevant social institutions, such as the law, the schools, and sports. And there is increasing evidence, this was written a few years ago, there is increasing evidence of the hard variety. When you look at the figures on alcoholism, drug use, sexual activity, and crime, they imply, and now I would say substantiate, a fading distinction, I would say erased distinction, between childhood and adulthood, erasing this distinction between childhood and adulthood by giving adult themes and, and tasks to children. And by the way, the other side of that coin, Neil Postman gets to that too, the infantilization of adults. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's call attention to the fact that children have vis- virtually disappeared from the media, especially from television. I don't mean that people who are young can't be seen. I mean that when they are shown, they are depicted as miniature adults in the manner of 13 and perhaps 14th century paintings. We might call this condition the Gary Coleman phenomenon, by which I mean that an attentive viewer of sitcoms, soap operas, or any other popular TV format will notice that the children on such shows do not differ significantly in their interests, language, dress, or sexuality from the adults on the exact same shows. That's one side of it. There's another side of it, and that has to do with the model of an adult. And when we come back, I'll tell you what Neil Postman thinks about the infantilization of adults. Mark me as one standing with Candace. If the law... And your school administration won't preserve the childhood and sanctity and specialness of your child, then they shouldn't be in business. But since we can't put them out of business, you can sue and you can move. You can exercise school choice. You can homeschool. But get your kids to safety, moral, social, and intellectual, whatever you do. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. We're going to do a lot today. I have a lot to talk about uh, with regard to the border, uh, also COVID, but of course Afghanistan too. And I want to I want to go a little deep. Uh, I want to go a little deep on that with you and get your thoughts on it as well. The first thought that comes to mind, actually, too, um, have to do with what Jerry Ford and Ronald Reagan both said after the fall of Saigon in 1975. Um, Jerry Ford said, now is not the time for retribution. And Ronald Reagan said, when is a better time? And what I think you get in those two statements are exactly two different views, two different worldviews of what a defeat to America can mean, can look like, and will mean and will look like versus um, a politician or a political leader 
trying to play to the New York Times. I want to come back to that, especially the New York Times and Afghanistan in a few moments. But as I said before, I wanted to first talk about the problem of infantilizing adults. I talked a moment ago about the problem of adultifying infants and uh, disappearing childhood by disappearing childhood. The same is true for the traditional models when it comes to adults, Neil Postman writes. If one looks closely at the content of TV, one can find a fairly precise documentation not only of the rise of the adultified child, but also the rise of the childified adult, or what I call the infantilized adult. Television is clear about this as almost anything else, although without question the best representation of the childlike adult is in the film Being There, which in fact is about this very process. Now it's interesting what Neil Postman does is he writes about a lot of sitcoms that were popular in the 70s and 80s, but I don't think his examples are wrong. I believe the models are still the same. He goes through a bunch of them, and he talks, in fact, also about the entire population of Fantasy Island. Any one of the characters in any of the famous shows in the 70s or 80s can hardly be said to be adult characters, even after one has made allowances for the traditions of the formats in which they appear. With a few exceptions, adults on on television do not take their work seriously if they work at all. They do not nurture children. They have no engagement in politics unless it is one-sided and a joke. They practice no religion. They represent no tradition. They have no foresight or serious plans. They have no extended conversations and in no circumstances allude to anything that is not familiar to an eight-year-old person. That was true when Neil Postman wrote this in the 90s. It was true in the decade before that. And it's all the more true now. And that's probably why at the end of the day we are allowing children And the law is allowing parents to allow children to make lifelong decisions about their most, we thought, immutable characteristics, their gender. Who knew those things were mutable? Who knew that nine-year-olds would be allowed to make those decisions? It makes all the more sense when you're teaching five- and six-year-olds that it's normal through organizations like the Cartoon Network. This is the assault on our children. This is what Candace Owens is talking about. And this is what everyone who is weighing in on behalf of the administrative state against governors like Ron DeSantis, it's what all of those people miss entirely. Ron DeSantis is standing up for something much bigger and much more important than just mandating that schools, uh, excuse me, allowing schools to mandate that children have masks, something much bigger, something about personhood, something about childhood, something about individualism, and something resistant at long last, something resistant about the dictates from Washington, D.C., which can be seen as a wrong in themselves when they're unconstitutional and counter the Federalist Project, but are another degree 
different when they are based in no science other than political preference. I can't even say it's political science because my view of political science, although probably a little romantic for our times, is that there is still such a thing as right and wrong and yes and no. And if nothing else must subject itself to some kind of methodology or scientific scientific method, if not in rhetoric and then in research. And you cannot find that. You cannot find that research when it comes to children and masks. You want to order vaccinations? That's another thing altogether. And the president doesn't have that power. You want to push on children to get vaccinations? Well, then you tell me which science we're supposed to follow because the World Health Organization recommends against it while the CDC is recommending in favor of it. Look, look, you can keep doing what the doctor in Indiana said, which is the same thing over and over again as you get surprised by increased cases because what you're doing over and over again won't do anything to the rise in cases. You can keep doing that. You can keep going that way. You can keep shutting down our economy. You can keep punishing our children. Or you can get serious. Or you can get serious and recognize, first and foremost, Anthony Fauci is not infallible. He's been wrong on everything he said. Just give it two months. Joe Biden is not infallible. He's been wrong on everything he has said on COVID as well as foreign policy and the border. We're going to get to all of that as well. The CDC is impossible to follow. There is no administrator at the Food and Drug Administration. At the very moment, people are asking why we cannot get from emergency authorized use to full FDA approval of the vaccine, which is responsible for some of the hesitancy. The president goes after, as does Kamala Harris, the entirely wrong population in an effort to shame them, in an effort to shame them. The population to go after in, in, in promoting vaccinations right now, especially if you're worried about the hot spots in our urban areas, is not the white evangelicals or Trump supporters, as CNN likes to keep saying. Look at the data. You'll be awfully surprised who it is. I'll give you a hint. In New York City, 70% of the African-American population is not vaccinated. Think about what that will mean when restaurants and gyms are shut to them, as the progressive Marxist mayor of New York has said it will be. Trump's fault, you ask? Well, we'll talk about that in a lot of other contexts coming up, too. Afghanistan, the border, and a lot more. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Open line Friday. Anything on your mind? 602-508-0960. There's a lot on mine, and we'll get through it together. First, Rick calling in from Colorado. Hi, Rick. Hi, Seth. 
How are you, sir? Good. How are you? I sent you a couple of emails. Uh, Joe Biden planted the seed to be able to say that the fault of the corona vaccines are going to be Donald Trump. If you look at his speech, he says it was developed under a Republican administration, but delivered under the, under a Democratic administration. And I think he was taking a step back because they thought that this was going to be where Biden was going to take over and COVID was going to go away. They seemed to have just planned on a uh, policy that whatever Trump did, we will do the opposite um, as the answer, as, as, as the right answer for our country when it comes to COVID, but also seemingly everything else. One can take it from COVID all the way down to the southwestern border. One can take it to Iran. One can take it to China. It begs the question I've been asking, which is, what is one thing Joe Biden has touched that he's made better, Rick? Also, it's really important that we don't let Joe Biden get away with these kinds of things. He got both his doses before he was the president of the United States, Joe Biden did. So this nonsense about it was the Democrats that distributed it is nonsense. Oh, I agree completely that it was that it was nonsense, but they didn't want to give Trump a win. Big Pharma was mad at Trump because he was going after them. So they held on to the to, to release it until after Biden was elected. You know, there was a deal made. Uh, Listen, uh, for them to announce the vaccine a week after the election, I have a story here that shows that they actually had plans to announce it prior to the election and then withdrew it. Yes, Rick, of course, of course. And, you know, it's an odd thing when you think about it because it's hard for people to grasp the notion that corporate America is not on the conservative side. You know, for years and years and years, the left would you know, rail about, you know, people, not profits. And supposedly we Republicans were, you know, the corporate class. Uh, turns out uh, that the corporate, the corporations uh, got, got, got a voice and a vote on this as well. And after 50 years of educating people who would go and work for these corporations in sponges drenched uh, with socialism and Marxism, uh, we wake up to find that uh, no longer on, are the corporations on America's side. They're on progressive Marxist side. And you can do this with almost any major American corporation today. They're not really American corporations anymore. I'm talking about, you know, the most iconic of brands. The kinds of things, oddly and also ironically enough, in the 80s that were being smuggled into the Soviet Union because of, because the Soviet Soviets wanted what we had. I don't think you'd find very many Marxists clamoring for Nike and Coca-Cola today. They find them to be, um, excuse me, I don't think you'd find very many anti-Marxists, people living under the thumbscrew of Marxism, clamoring for uh, Coca-Cola and Nike today as they did in the 70s and 80s because Coca-Cola and companies like Nike are not on the freedom lover's side. They're on the communist side. Oh, yeah. When uh, when Coca-Cola went woke, I quit drinking Powerade and went to Gatorade. You know, there is one American company that deserves a little bit of um, of praise here. I wanna I wanna give them their due praise, and that's Levi's. Levi's jeans. 
Do you know this story? It didn't get a lot of attention, Rick. Do you know the story about Levi's from last Friday? No, I didn't hear it. They were part of a consortium, a clothing consortium, that did include corporations like Nike. They were part of a trade organization that was dedicated to making certain that their clothing was not made with uh, slave and child labor. Okay, kind of you can remember some of this going on with making sure diamonds weren't coming from places that uh, that engaged in 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 labor and uh, homicide. Right. Well, all the major corporations of this organization kowtowed and bowed to China, denying that they used child and slave labor. And this trade organization of which Levi's was a member went along with it and pulled one of their studies pulled, took off the internet, one of their studies detailing slavery in China. Guess what Levi's did? They left. They left the consortium. They wanted nothing to do with it. Go buy some Levi's today and feel good to be a proud American. I'm wondering if uh, – welcome back, 602 anything on your mind? As uh, Winnie Miller reminded me, I'll take on anything. I just won't give advice on medicine or law or accounting. Other than that, feel free to call and ask me anything. I'll tell you if I don't know the answer. Uh, I will reiterate what I said yesterday. I didn't mean it arrogantly. I just meant it seriously, which is I will put the record of everything I wrote and said about COVID – up against the record uh, of Anthony Fauci all the way back to March of last year and what he said. And we'll see who turned out to be more right. I know the answer to that. I suspect many of you do too. Um, Afghanistan. I had mentioned earlier when um, we pulled our last troops out of Saigon as soldiers were fleeing the embassy helicopters Gerald Ford said today is not he was the president at the time now is not the time for retribution prompting Ronald Reagan to say when better when is there a better time and as I mentioned earlier presented two world views on the issue of morality and foreign and defense policy I was motivated uh, to think a little bit about these terms of Saigon not because of some of the comparisons you've heard but what I heard on another radio show today, which was a host describing for the audience what Saigon was in case they were too young to know of it or remember it. And I thought, my goodness gracious, my goodness gracious, uh, we are about about two weeks out, three weeks out from commemorating 9-11, 20 years after 9-11. How many among us are going to have to do remedial education about what that was for our 19 and 20 and 21-year-olds? Is Saigon no longer taught in our schools? Is Vietnam no longer taught in our schools? If it isn't, mark me down as someone who provisionally approves of it not being taught in our schools. If 
for the only reason that it will be mistaught. I'd rather someone know nothing about something than the wrong things about something. It's much easier much easier to educate than to do and engage in remedial education. If you don't agree with that, simply ask any college professor at the university or junior college level who teaches freshmen and ask them if it's easier to educate or uneducate and re-educate remedially. Um, Okay, so Afghanistan. It brings up a lot of debates even within our own movement, and this is what I'm curious about in this audience. The word neoconservative has become a dirty word, particularly in the foreign policy context, and I can understand and appreciate why. I always am quick to try and point out that the word neoconservative doesn't just come with that pejorative paternity. It was originally a term used to describe people who were focused in the conservative movement on domestic policy, particularly crime, education, and welfare. You think of your James Q. Wilsons on crime. I don't know if he said anything ever about foreign policy. You think about Irving Kristol on fatherhood, welfare, and education. I don't know that he ever wrote an essay on foreign policy. He is known as the godfather of conservatism. He is the actual father of Bill Kristol. You think of William Bennett on education. You think of people like uh, the Wall Street, well, institutions like the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Robert Bartley and Jack Kemp, when it came to economic reform. You think of think tanks like the Manhattan Institute, welfare reform, American Enterprise Institute, crime, education, the kind of stuff Charles Murray was doing. These places and people were the original neoconservatives, and it was all about domestic policy, liberals who believed in the great society only to realize very shortly that it was a miserably bad idea that would have worse consequences than it was trying to solve and the problems that it was trying to solve. It was the application of data and research to understand the misbegotten origins and effects of the Great Society program. And that's why Ronald Reagan brought so many of them into his administration. And yes, at a certain point, some of those were foreign policy folks, too. One thinks of Gene Kirkpatrick, first and foremost. What's interesting about Gene Kirkpatrick is until she became the ambassador in the United Nations for the United States, she was a political science professor, mostly having to do with domestic policy issues at Georgetown University, believe it or not. And, of course, his State Department became that as well. But somewhere along the line, neoconservatives stood less for domestic policy and more for foreign policy, the kind that Bill Kristol has become famous or infamous for promoting, the kind that, um, in essence, talks of adventurism, military solutions first and foremost, and nation-building. So much so that even Bill Kristol today tweeted out, that Afghanistan can be repaired if we send in enough troops and try and do it again the right way. He's not ready 
to give in or give up. He wants to apply more troops. I don't. I don't. I don't want to apply more troops. But what do you say about an administration that guaranteed that its withdrawal policy would not lead to a takeover by the Taliban, which in only a month it led to? Which in only a month it led to, such that we now have to send in more military troops to safely evacuate Americans and her allies than exist there already. What do you say about that? What do you say about an administration that now, after announcing troop withdrawals, is sending in more troops than it was planning to withdraw so that the ones it can withdraw can be withdrawn safely? Because the Taliban is now on the outskirts of not just two provinces, but the capital. The capital. What does it mean to make Saigon happen all over again? It means exactly this. When we left Vietnam, as we did in 1975, in helicopters, in exigency, in dire straits, in a mad rush, between that and 1981 January, the inauguration of Ronald Wilson Reagan, between the fall of Saigon and the inauguration of Ronald Wilson Reagan, 10 countries, 10, 10 countries fell to the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union knew it could go in and take them and that America had become enfeebled with Vietnam, with, with Vietnam Syndrome. There was a war that got us out of Vietnam Syndrome. There hasn't been one since. More to talk about when we come back. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. I'd like your views on Afghanistan. Having captured most of Afghanistan, the Taliban are now threatening Kabul, prompting the U.S. to send thousands of troops for a diplomatic evacuation. That's what the Wall Street Journal says. The New York Times says that Joe Biden, President Biden, asks the Taliban to stand down. Is that what our foreign policy has become? begging the Taliban. Peter's in Mesa. Hello, Peter. Uh, yes, I'm afraid it has become that. It's please stand down. Please pump more oil. Please <laughs> this, please that. Please don't invade Taiwan, which is where I think uh, uh, China Joe is going to with all this. He is just so weak and so controlled uh, with his comprom compromised situation with his son that China will sense the, our obvious weakness here and lack of resolve, even to deal functionally with the coronavirus. And it's, it scares the daylights out of me. And if I was in Taiwan, I would be shaking. If I were in Taiwan, I would be I shaking. Would be if I were in Hong Kong, I would be shaking. Yeah. If I were anywhere where I was an ally of the United States faced by an enemy, I'd be shaking, just as all our allies were from roughly 1975 to 1981. Yeah. But I'll tell you something, yeah. Peter, as an American, I'm shaking. 
Yes, me too. Where do you come down on Afghanistan as far as how long we were supposed to be there, how long we are supposed to be there? Well, when we finally got rid of uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, that was when we should have said, we're out of here immediately. Uh, we This is, again, one of these wars where we were not permitted the resolve to actually do the job as we were in, in Vietnam. They put a gun on top of a hospital, and we can't hit that. I'm sorry, you put a gun on a hospital, it's a target. Uh, and those are the rules of engagement. War is hell, and it's ugly, and it's unfortunately part of the human condition that I absolutely loathe that we do not have a better way to resolve issues. But where, with Afghanistan, we should have been out of there a long time ago. At first, I thought we were there for the rare earth minerals. But I understand China might be moving more towards that, and that would be rather interesting to see the Taliban actually brutally slaughtered by the Chinese. <laughs> Boy, but I'll the tell whole you. region unstable scares the daylights out of me. Yeah, it's a I scary so time. No, it's 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 a frightening time. We're frightened about all the. What we're frightened about in this country, unfortunately, is all the right, uh, all the wrong things. We're frightened about all the wrong things in this country right now, and we're not frightened sufficiently about the things that should scare the you-know-what out of us. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. The great Wilford Riley joining us up right away and next. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 